Hello and welcome to The First, the inaugural uh, history department at Putney High's uh, history podcast. I'm joined by Dr Shawcross in his fetching piratical hat. It's not uh, a pirate hat. <laughs> and uh, Mr Patty as well, and I'm Mr Coulson. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we'll do various of these over the year hopefully, and hopefully you'll be able to answer us, ask us questions and things like that. But each uh, week we'll have a bit of a theme, and I decided for this week, because this is the first podcast we would do our favorite historical firsts um and i will start with dr shawcross so dr shawcross what is your favorite historical first well what an honor to be the first of the first i have <laughs> gone with uh something that we had the anniversary of a few weeks ago oh, yeah. 14th of september 1847 had you been in the central square the zocalo of mexico city you would have seen an extraordinary sight mm-hmm. hitherto unknown. This is the first time that US troops march into and occupy a foreign capital. Um, and it's an extraordinary moment when, and of course, they march in as a ragtag band of soldiers who fought their way up from Veracruz right on the coast of Mexico, all the way inland to Mexico City, the same route that Hernan Cortez took. Mm-hmm. Um, and why it's such an extraordinary moment, apart from um, how visually striking it would be, is that this is the first time we see the United States of America go out on what I like to think of its schizophrenic journey, because the beginning um, of the United States of America is overthrowing tyranny and oppression, George III, Hamilton, the musical, largely through the medium of hip-hop, the British League. (laughs) Um, And this this idea the United States is is born out of oppression and is fighting always for freedom. And there's this uh, beautiful quote by John Quincy Adams, Mm. one of the founding fathers and president of the United States of America, who says the United States of America does not go abroad in search of monsters to slay. The idea that if you do, you will become the monster yourself. Mm. So it's a liberty-loving, fluffy eagle, the United <laughs> States of America. But this baby eagle grows up and... Um, it and takes the Mexican takes eagle. Mexico, takes Mexico, takes the Mexican eagle. It gets blood on its talons for the first time. <laughs> and this is under President James Polk. It's one yes. of the most cynical wars in history. Um, he lies about an incident on the border. He says that American troops mm. have, have, been, have been killed on American soil. His, his exact words, American blood spilt on American soil. It's not true. Fabricated. Fake news. On, fake news. Fake, it's fake. It's original fake news. Yeah. Um, it's real Putin-esque <laughs> stuff, um, which you know, the United States of America is railing against. And the war is, Mexico is, um, is much bigger uh, at this time of yes. today, and the reason it is much smaller today is because all of this land, California, Arizona, uh, parts of Wyoming, Texas, up to Central, Canada, as well, up to, right up to Canada, are, are, are seized in this war of conquest and aggression. And one year later, in 1848, the US forces Mexico literally with a, a, a gun to its head to sign away all of this territory, if you think of mm. California, which has an economy today bigger than that of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Mm. That used to be part of Mexico. I mean, the Q, 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 clues yes. are in the name. Los Angeles, California, San Francisco. These are parts of the Spanish Empire that become Mexican and then are violently seized in this, um, this aggressive act of the United States of America. But it was worth it then. For the United States, it <laughs> <Yes>. was. And <laughs> you yes. could argue James Polk, the little-known president, you could yeah, argue yeah. he was the most successful president yeah. in history because he transformed the United States of America from a, an East Coast power, got it access to the Pacific, yeah. transcontinental. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time, as I say, we see this wonderful, lovely, fluffy, liberty-loving eagle get, yeah. um, get blood into its beak. And which, which political party was Polk? Very good question. Um, he would have been Democrat. I think he was, yeah. Do you think he was an internationalist? Do you think he 
wanted America to be an international player? Or was he, like many presidents, actually inwardly focused? Uh, I think it was inwardly focused, but he did want it to be a, okay. a competing power. Manifest destiny. Manifest destiny, exactly. So that, that phrase is actually coined in the, at this very time mm. in the Democratic Review. And um, a huge amount of this is, is, is about race. Mexicans are a people not worth considering or bothering. Mm. They're like, they are like um, Native Americans. And there's an extraordinary quote from that Democratic Review, which is a journal where the term Manifest Destiny comes from. And it says that Mexicans now must see their fate as that of the Aborigines of the North, i.e. Mm. Native Americans. They, will, I, they must either amalgamate or disappear from the face of the earth. Yeah. And so the, this, this, this policy of conquest is predicated on race and power and transforming the United States into the dominant continental power and then the global one. Does that, does that problematise the concept of America being a nation driven by isolationism? Because this is very early on some form of like conquering of other territory. Or do they not see it, because of this manifest destiny, do they not see it as being conquering other territory but simply claiming what should already be there is. Would they say it still is isolationism, ironically? Or? No, uh, that's a really interesting question. I think that the, the whole isolationist myth is, is slightly overplayed. I think what you see in the US is, is points of where it, it looked more inward and points where it looks more outward. This is, the, I would say, the first outburst of that sort of um, imperial, for want of a better word, destiny. And it's stunted by the US Civil War, which mm. means that it is, of course, looking inwardly. It can't be involved in international affairs. But um, conversely, at the same time, the US Civil War creates this extraordinary, uh, really well-organized federal um, state and army, which then bursts onto the international scene in 1898 with the Spanish-American mm. War, Cuba. occupies Cuba, Puerto Rico, <coughs> runs the Philippines as a colony. So again, this yeah. idea the United States of America is isolationist. It's the whole time the, that, that, that uh, narrative is going on. The U in you know it, up until 1940s, the Philippines is a colony administered by yeah. Washington. Um, it's it's never as isolationist as people think. There are certainly politicians who would argue that it shouldn't be engaged in world affairs, but um, it is. I mean, it's a superpower from much earlier on, and I think most people. Can yeah, agree. it's mm. interesting. Uh, one final thing: um, What do you think America learned from that, from their for their subsequent invasions of foreign capitals? Do you think this emboldened them, or did they do? Did they act differently when they when they invaded? Because they've invaded several other capitals since. Oh yeah, well, as I say, it's the first the first time the beat gets blood on it. But it, yes. the, the eagle likes. The Can you taste. compare Baghdad to Mexico? Um, I think to I think to some <laughs> to some extent you, you, you can, I mean I don't think they learn anything, but I think what, what <laughs> yeah, they no. what they do what they do learn is is the ability to lie to themselves and be hypocritical like all other nations. It's not unique. To them, but there is this idea, which which John Quincy Adams, you know, in, in bodies that the United States of America will be different. It's mm. a democratic nation. It's in support of, of liberty and freedom. Of course, you know, it, it is it, it, at its birth. It is a slave owning democracy. So yeah. there is um, there is always that. But that's not unusual at the time. This just demonstrates to people who believe that it should be better uh, that it isn't, but they should still aspire to be so. And to people who don't believe it should be better and should be America. Mm. First, to coin a phrase, yes, um, they see it as well because <laughs> we are extraordinarily good at this, and we like to have the stars and stripes unfurled over other national capitals and the Star Sangled Banner playing into the windows of Mexican um, Mexican mansions. So I think it emboldens one side, mm. and it reinforces the other that the United States of America should be different, and then those two twin tracks to continue to this day. Absolutely. Mm. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Shawcross. That's very interesting. Uh, now, uh, Mr. Patty.
What is your favourite historical first? The historical first I've gone for is actually a historical first invention. Mm -hmm. um, now, strictly speaking, I'm going to fudge this a little bit because there's, there's debate about who actually invented this and when. Now, like with most things in history, the East actually got there first. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese have invented this before, but um, I'm going to be talking about the invention of the printing press. Oh, yeah. Um, now, whilst there's been printing going on in Asia, it doesn't really hit uh, the Western world until around about 1450. Uh, and the guy who comes up with the printing press, a guy called Johannes Gutenberg, mm -hmm. uh, based in Germany. Um, now his print is slightly different to the Chinese in the sense that it's movable type, whereas before they would carve onto bits of wood mm. um, to, to print stuff. Now, to contextualise this, why is this such an amazing first invention? Well, in the medieval period, the only way you could uh, disseminate information and spread information was by handwriting stuff. Um, in a painstaking, very slow way. There was a scriptorium where monks, it was often <laughs> just monks, because that's yeah. people who were highly educated with a lot of time on their hands, um, could sit and write down books and beautifully transcribe things. But as you can imagine, this take a very long time. It was often written in the language of the elite, so uh, written in Latin, and the circulation was, was very, very small. Um, so not many people had access to this stuff. So when print comes along, what we manage to do is to mass produce information for the first time. Mm. Um, now we say mass produce, Gutenberg, the, the most famous print run Gutenberg has is of, of his Bible. There's only 190 copies, which today would seem negligible. Mm. But the president is set then that we can produce stuff on a mass scale very, very quickly. Um, the printing press, uh, sort of, you can sort of tie that into the, the invention of the printing press, tied into sort of the movement away from the medieval world into sort of modern society, at least early modern society. Um, it comes along at a time when the, the Renaissance um, sort of ideas are, are bubbling away, um, new ideas and thought. It comes along at the same time as the Reformation. So one of the arguments as to why the Reformation and the split uh, away from the papacy, which starts in Germany and spreads all over um, the Scandinavian countries, mm. then across to England with Henry VIII, it's because print allows those ideas of the reformers to spread much more quickly uh, and much more widely. Um, Print also sees a democratization, I suppose, of information. So whereas before it was only the elite who had access to this stuff, um, now ordinary people could uh, read information from different parts of the world. Um, one of the reasons why sort of um, vernacular languages as opposed to so Latin are so popular is because print allowed text to be published in German, which mm. is what ordinary people would have spoken, not the language of the elite. Text would be published in English. Um, and even when people were still illiterate, you would have uh, the printing press would allow for woodcuts or carvings or drawings, sketches essentially, to be sent around uh, the, the, the world. So what I think we get with the invention of the printing press is, for the first time, information is sort of uh, able to be dis distributed on a mass scale. It's sort of like the internet 1.0. Mm. Um, that's how big and important an invention I yeah. believe this to be. Um, and also the access to that information goes from a tiny privileged elite to mass consumption. Uh, and in that way we get ideas of say, like religious ideas mm. are spread, uh, ideas regarding um, sort of republicanism and new political thought and idea. Um, you could even argue that with the birth of Protestantism, you get the idea of the Protestant work ethic. Maybe mm. we even get the, the birth of capitalism coming out of the printing press, <laughs> um, wow. potentially. Um, and then of course, if you trace that through towards the sort of 18th, 19th century, birth of newspapers, um, where we get sort of daily circular papers uh, for all manner of people in society. You can see, you can trace it through mm. um, just the impact this had, which was enormous. Do you think there was a negative impact as well? Because if you compare it to the internet, you know, the internet is fantastic, but there are you know, 
darker areas of the internet and negativity came from it. So do you think having all this information unleashed in the world, had, did it have a negative point at the time? Well, yeah, I mean, you, immediately out of the um, sort of reformation, you get uh, an event like, well, depends on which part of the Europe you're in, categorised in different years, but mm. 30 years war would be, I suppose, the classic, whereby because of the information that the Protestant reformers were sending out with the printing press, um, equally, the, the Catholic Church were able to use it very well as, as in return. So you had very violent, aggressive tracts being spread by both sides, um, which then bubbled over into into a war which engulfed all of Europe for mm, 30 years. If, you, course, if, you're in, yeah. if you're in Holland, you're at war for 100 years, um, sort of with the, the Habsburg Empire. Mm. Um, so yeah, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of violence. Um, I suppose you've then got issues of questions today, I suppose, of freedom of speech. What should people be allowed to print? Um, there wasn't censorship yeah. in, the, uh, in the same way I suppose initially it wasn't censorship, but the Catholic Church very quickly did try to censor. Um, oh, yeah, again, course. with newsprint, I sort of said that newspapers suddenly allowed people to read whatever they wanted. Um, if you look at um, particularly war correspondents, say, it's not until we get to the Vietnam War in the 1960s that what we're reading about wars is actually genuinely mm. stuff that's happening. It's government controlled. So, yeah, you're right. I suppose the, there are dangers and abuses of, yeah. of information. And why do you think we think of it as a European invention, even though, as you said, it was actually a, a Chinese one? Why was it? Why is it land at the door of the Europeans? Well, we could get semantics and the idea that they that in, in the East they invented a slightly different form of printing mm. press. Um, also, you've got sort of the art of calligraphy still remains yeah. very strong even to this day. But I suppose more fundamentally, it's just Western biased. We are yeah. the, the, in the education system and the place in which we find ourselves in the world. We do have an Occidental mm. lens. We do see stuff from a Western historical perspective. And I, I, I apologise for this bias. <laughs> yeah. I'm ashamed. Really we live in that shame. But no. I don't think that takes away from the fact it's a very important invention. But no, indeed. Do you think that there's a qualitative difference then with print? And I, the reason I ask that, I completely agree with your thesis. I'm merely playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> but I did ancient and modern history. And one thing that I always sort of fascinate, I take the, you know, the traditional kind of narrative of, Greece and Rome is light and well, but obviously other places as well, Egypt, etc. And then interested in the barbarians, you know, making tiny bronze frogs <laughs> claim are as good as the Roman Forum, and, and, and that's up to them. Um, but so, but you sort of the ideas um, and you know, and the discourse, and to some extent that that public sphere, one imagines from the sources that survive, it's it is vibrant. Um, but it's nothing, it's not, not on the scale of printing. So I just wonder, yes, is there a qualitative difference? I have a very long question. Qualitative <laughs> diff- what, what qualitative difference to print to disseminating ideas by orally or by, by manuscript? Again, I, I think I've, I've probably sort of given this very sort of grand idea that sort of ordinary people were now suddenly engaging in sort of um, wrestling with really difficult ideas and concepts. Um, if we go back to what, what most people were getting with early print were sort of very actually rude, and I mean rude, crude woodcuts, um, images of the, the Pope defecating, for example, <laughs> being uh, issued. So yeah. it's not a highbrow yeah. um, sort of uh, meeting <laughs> of, of, um, of Another comparison of with the internet there, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so a lot of the, yeah, there is a qualitative <laughs> difference in the sense that it's mass-produced, which therefore means, I suppose, we can put out a lot of rubbish alongside um, a lot of more quality, mm. interesting tracts. So... Um, I think that's true. So potentially, the time invested, I mean, those scriptoriums, the books that produce there are beautiful. Yeah. And there is a, a bit of snobbishness that starts to come when print arrives, which is the nobility still want these nice, beautiful handwritten books. I mean, that's what I would want now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> worth a lot yeah. of money. <laughs> Probably, right, absolutely. 
Great. Well, thank you very, very much for that, Mr. Patty. That was excellent. Right. Um, my uh, favourite historic first is, like Dr. Shawcross, is a, a bit of an anniversary. Mine's a bit older than yours, though, Dr. Shawcross. It's 500 years ago, mm-hmm. last week, was the launching of Magellan and his 24 ships for the first ever circumnavigation of the globe. Um, we will take for granted now that the Earth is round, but I think before then... Not was, everyone, though. Not everyone, no, no I know. And no, it's, gro- it's growing I'm as well. I'm no scientist. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a different thing entirely. Uh, there's a few reasons why I chose that. One of the... Uh, there's several interesting things about it. First of all, he was Portuguese, and it's pronounced Magellan. I was just saying this mm. to Mr. Patsy, apparently. I've always called it Magellan, Michael but Magellan. Yeah. It's Je, yeah. like you put in your hair, apparently. Um, and... Um, uh, he, he was, but he was Portuguese, but under the banner of Spain, a bit like Christopher Columbus, who was Italian, came through. I think the Spanish had a uh, monopoly on, on intrepid explorers then. Uh, but just this, the details of the expedition are extraordinary about certain things of um, the, the Atlantic crossing, though, being pursued by Portuguese ships. So they had to fight off battles as well as endeavour and scientifically and exploration. Um, out of the 24, sh- sorry, out of the five ships that went and 240 men, only one ship made back came back with 24 men. So that's worse than space travel, isn't it, in terms of uh, going out to the unknown and dying within the sea, which is incredibly brave, that sort of daring doughness of all. Um, the other things are most interesting about it is Magellan is the man who named it the Pacific. He went around the corner after a year of um, Cape Horn and saw a very calm sea. But as we all know, the Pacific is not actually very pacified. Um, and I liked his arrogance when I was reading about it. He said he could get from across the Pacific in four days. So he brought, he brought four days' worth of provisions. Uh, fast forward eight months, and then they land in the Philippines, just, you know, men having died of scurvy and eating uh, biscuits turned into dust, and there was rat urine all over certain things that they had to drink. And it was just, you know, uh, that just brazen attitude across the giant Pacific and we take it for granted we can fly across it in eight hours um, but of course Magellan didn't make it across the Pacific. he didn't actually complete the circumnavigation he died in the Philippines because as soon as he got to the Philippines understandably he was hungry and thirsty but I think took advantage of the local people caused quite a significant war between islands got caught up into the middle of it and died yeah so Magellan is not the person who is the uh, circumnavigator of the whole world and someone has done a bit of research which is rather interesting to find the very first person in human history to go around the world and they think it's a chap called Enrique of Malacca who was actually Magellan's slave so four or five years before Magellan had gone to the Malaysia Malacca to and for various different things he was an intrepid explorer after all and he picked up the slave took him back to Portugal and whatever the case he then took the slave on this expedition with him going the other way across the Atlantic ah. around the Pacific gets to the Philippines Magellan dies so Enrique says well I've had enough of this I'm going to go back to Malacca therefore beating the other guys who were on their ship so this unknown uh, slave is the first ever person to go around the world so like the printing press another example of European Absolutely. Claiming something yeah, yeah, yeah. that perhaps isn't theirs. <laughs> isn't theirs, no, it's this young Malaysian man. But I, just, I think what's so interesting about it is, again, that the bravery of it going out into the world. I, oh, I yeah. do compare it to space exploration because it's absolutely, it's mm. complete unknown, incredibly well, it's unsafe. It's almost more unknown than space because yes. we, know, you know, we know where the moon is and people could have seen it before they went there. Yes. You yeah. can't see... <laughs> No, they don't know. They don't have the globe or even a map. No. Yeah, there's a horizon there, isn't there? Yeah, that's it. You can't see beyond it. So yeah. Yeah, that's very true. 
and I think the age of discovery is very interesting as well. That I do something I don't think we can have really relate in our world. What are we no. now discovering about our world? Yeah. That in a, in a it's positive all, it's way. It's all been explored. It's why I get Has very it, disappointed yeah. when <laughs> It's all been explored. Uh, you know, we're, we're on our finds, we're explorer. But it, it's just sort of going to the North Pole quicker than the last person. It's, yeah. You know. Nothing compared there are, to Magellan. There are also these uncontacted tribes, though, that occasionally, yeah. unfortunately, get contacted. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. 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 I suppose we should still keep looking just in case. But um, no, they, essentially, I'm saying these people who go on month long treks and they come back and I'm not impressed. I need to work no. harder. You do, don't you? <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, I like the age of discovery. I think it's a, an interesting thing to think about. Right, there's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about. I will spring on you because I wanted your genuine opinion on this. It's a bit about history in the news. And I was reading an article quite, uh, here, and I'd like to hear your opinion on it. Um, so this week, um, there's a museum in the Netherlands that has put on exhibition. Just one. Just one, but there's, <laughs> there's a particular one uh, that has put on an exhibition of Third Reich and Nazi design specifically uniforms, films, the VW Beetle, oh, some yeah. of the furniture, etc. And it's had quite a lot of complaints that it's glorifying the mm-hmm. Nazis. Mm. But then the uh, museum itself says, no, actually, it's not. It's, you know, there's, an, uh, there's a text reminding of the destruction. It's just, it is, they're not trying to appreciate the design, they're just exhibiting it. So I suppose the question to you, ultimately, is can... Are they who's right in this situation? Is it always wrong to display Nazi uh, memorabilia? I mean, what, so what is the difference between displaying it in the Imperial War Museum, displaying it in a, a fashion museum, the the uniforms, or a fascist museum, or a fascist <laughs> museum indeed? <laughs> uh, but uh, again, that's kind of the intention there. And I just wanted to know what you would think on that. Part of, part of it's the response and the, and the person. I think, I suppose, the issue if it's in a fashion museum, you're trying mm. to appreciate. You are there's an there's an act of appreciation. Going yes, on. exactly. I, I find that actually the, the best parallel I can come to with this is with literature, I suppose. Um, a lot of the time, people say you shouldn't study certain texts mm. because they have inherent biases in them. So, for example, um, people say you shouldn't study Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness because Conrad is a racist. Yeah. Yes, I'll accept Conrad is is racist. Fine. Does that n- make it not a tremendous piece of literature that he's written in his fourth language? Yeah. Well, yes, it is still a tremendous piece of literature. So I think. But, but it's, the, it's the person who is viewing the exhibit or is consuming the, the, the text or whatever it is that has to make that distinction in their own mind. You yeah. can appreciate the art and the craft of something without um, appreciating the, the ideology that, that goes with Indeed. it. I would argue you can, mm. you, you can distinguish the two, probably. Yeah, I think it's absolutely. It's context, isn't it? It's absolutely. If it, the context is placed in the explanation that's given to it, uh, and as long as um, that context is very clear about the horrific episode in history that was the Nazis, then yep. exhibiting uh, what are historical artefacts in a sense from that period uh, is an important part of the process of not forgetting and yeah. Not, uh, yeah. allowing these things to become commonplace or, or, or lost or mythologized, and that which makes it a lot easier it does, for someone yeah. to come back and glorify them if they so wish. So, uh, I mean, not knowing the museum and not knowing the story, mm. my um, answer would be yes, but it's about the context. And of course, Hugo Boss designed the SS yes, uniforms, didn't, didn't he? Did. So, you know. Yes, didn't he? And the VW Beetle is Still prolific, isn't it? Yeah, yes, production. do you think they just wheeled off the last ever one in Mexico or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. And that brings us full they circle, full doesn't it? Full circle. Uh, um, and the only other thing I thought we would do um, for you listeners is uh, 
the aim of one of the one of the aims of this podcast is to stretch and challenge. And so, if there was any recommendations that we had for any films, books, songs, shows, exhibitions, museum visits, perhaps the one in the Netherlands, maybe I don't know, um, that you would recommend for any particular students or any year groups or anything like that. I'll, I'll go first. Yeah. Um, so I just talked about uh, Gutenberg and his and his and his printing press at the British Library. A permanent collection has a mm. copy of Gutenberg's Bible. Okay. Which, um, it's sort of there, and you can look at it. Yeah. But the the, pri- the 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 permanent collection of the British Library, not just because of that, it's just a tremendous collection of, of stuff. Brilliant. So yeah. oh, go go. Magna not Carter's the British though. Library. Go Magna to it. Yeah. Shakespeare. Beatles lyrics. Uh, Beatles. Yeah. 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 It's all, very all good. Good stuff. Yeah. And actually, I, I have to check because I may now be recommending something that has in the past. <laughs> or I suppose that's the nature of history. But they did have as an exhibition there the history of writing, which yes. feeds into your printing press. So if that is still on, that would be worth going. But the, the special exhibitions they have there are normally brilliant. There was a Harry Potter one, which made people is also brilliant. Even better. Um, sign, where do I sign? Um, yeah. But um, yeah, and the British Library is a magnificent building. Great two listed now. It is. It's, it's a fun day. I know people think yes. going to the library and is not a fun day, but it is. It's can I connect to out. that as well? Because in the front piazza of the British Library yeah. is a statue yes. of Isaac Newton designed by William Blake. And I would like to recommend the William Blake exhibi- oh, exhibition yeah. at the Tate Britain. Um, you know, writing either side of the French Revolution, wasn't it, with his Songs of Experience and uh, the other one, Innocence, uh, Innocence that's it, yeah. Uh, and um, he, there's some wonderful art on show there as well, reflecting that. So that's very good. Magnificent. Magnificent. Right, well, thank you very, very much, Dr. Shawcross and Mr. Patty. I hope you have enjoyed this. If you have any questions for us, please do let us know. Or indeed, if you've got anything we would like to discuss in our future podcasts, that would be excellent. Thank you very much.